as I read through the story of the um, Esau and, and, and Yaakov um, scenarios and such, uh, some of you are familiar with Tom Clancy. He's you know he wrote lots of uh, good action novels, and yet you know what he can't hold a candle to God's action novel here. In fact, I compare in my commentary like a good Tom Clancy novel. No respect to Tom Clancy, by the way. If he ever logs on and hears this podcast, Mr. Clancy, I have no disrespect to you. I think your books are great, but um, God, God got beat you to the punch. God's got the best action novel out there, and it's and it's the one book we're reading right now, the book of uh, the book of the Bible. But like a good Tom Clancy novel, the Torah narrative baits the reader's curiosity by informing us that these two individuals, um, that from these two individuals, I might add, two nations of people will spring forth. We read about that in Genesis 25, verse 22 and 23. Isn't that interesting that from two men, the Torah promises that two whole nations of peoples will come forth. Let me pause and take a drink here. That water tastes good. Let me finish. Uh, keep going in my commentary here. Moreover, the Torah also informs us that the rivalry that started at birth and continuing through the majority of their lives will eventually culminate in one of these nations of peoples eventually serving the other. Wow, the, 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 you know, as as, um, as Alice would say in Alice in Wonderland, curiouser and curiouser. These uh, two people groups that the Torah is referring to is the, the details are like this: Asav would serve Yaakov. Asav becomes a nation of peoples, and the Torah promises that he would end up serving Yaakov. And and yet, you know, sometimes God gives us more than we anticipate. I have to stop and ask myself out loud, wonder out loud: Why does Hashem want us to know these intricate details of history? Why does He want us to know? Why do we care? Let's find out. What about the physical offspring of Abraham is so pertinent to us 21st century believers? Why does it matter to us today, is what I'm trying to say. In an effort to get an answer, let's turn to the Brichadashah, the Apostolic Scriptures, a.k.a. the New Covenant, a.k.a. the New Testament. Let's turn there for our answer, okay? In what I like to call Rav Shaul, who was Apostle Paul, and what I like to call his masterpiece of Jewish-Christian theological discussion, and my own personal favorite book of the entire Torah. Um, the book of Romans also talks about the birth of these two individuals and their subsequent relevance in the history of Hashem. In fact, David Stern, author of the Complete Jewish Bible, from which I make my quotes, and uh, he also authored the, New, the Jewish New Testament commentary, he has this to say about Romans chapter 9, verse 10 through 13. Let me make a quote from his commentary. Here we go. Quote, the case of Rivka is even more to the point in demonstrating God's absolute sovereignty in determining such matters independently of anything human beings do. For both Yaakov and Esav were her children, whereas the fact that Yishmael's mother was Hagar and Yitzchak's was Sarah might lead one to conclude that Sarah's greater worthiness had earned Yitzchak the promises. Nor can one look for a difference in deservedness on the father's side, for both were conceived in a single act by Yitzhak. And that is taken from David Stern, Jewish New Testament Commentary, the Jewish New Testament Publications Incorporated, 1996, and the page was 390, and he made the emphases there in the bold. 
let's go back to my commentary. What can uh, what we can glean from this, from David Stern's uh, comment there, is that not only is Hashem actively involved in a his in historical development, that is to say general history, God has his hand in general history, but really what we're trying to see is that God is ultimately orchestrating and directing all of history towards the divinely expected ending. God's not just randomly watching history go by and hoping that it will turn out for the best. What I believe is happening is that God is orchestrating the historical events, particularly for the covenant members that he's called out, so that history lines up with God's purposes and that nothing escapes God's will. It is in this way, you could say, that a man's destiny becomes fixed. God makes the rules. And that's why he's God. Notice that in our current parasha, at the request of Rivka, that Hashem disclosed some rather important details uh, some important key details surrounding the destinies of her soon-to-be-born twins. If you go back and read in chapter 25, verse 22 and 23, um, um, Rebecca asks God, you know, she feels the, the turmoil within her womb, the two children warring, as it were, with one another, even before they're born. And she asks God, why is this the way it is? And God gives her an answer and tells her about that the fact that two were going to become nations and that one will serve the other and things like that. So, she, this lets us know up front that, I mean, if you have a problem with predestination, I'm sorry. Our God makes sure that things happen the way that he plans them. And whether you call it predestination or whether you call it God's foreknowledge, it works out to be the same result. The end result is the same. Nothing happens without God knowing it. This speaks to us about the sovereignty of our all-knowing God and his desire to bless all of mankind through chosen, obedient individuals. God ordains the steps of the righteous man. And we read that in the book of Psalms, I believe. I think it's Psalms. It might be uh, Proverbs I'm quoting. At any rate, God chooses righteous individuals through every generation. The Torah demonstrates this. And as God works through the righteous of each generation, the rest of mankind is, is put on a collision course with God's will and brought into an opportunity, I might add, to join the family of God. And sadly, we know that not all men respond to God's offer. Ultimately, the righteous man known as Yeshua stepped into the pages of history and offered mankind, how should we say, salvation in its utmost. And yet, we know that not all men will accept Yeshua. So, unfortunately, because of our fallen condition, we men... Uh, mankind as, as a whole. Because of this condition that we're in, we usually render ourselves ineligible to receive Hashem's blessings. What is that ineligibility? It's due to our lack of faith. We simply lack faith in God. We know that the book of Hebrews tells us that without faith it is impossible to please God. We have to believe that God is and that he's a rewarder of those that diligently seek him. And so the solution facing mankind is to believe that God is God and that he rewards those who seek him. And his ultimate reward is salvation in his son Messiah Yeshua. But this lack of faith doesn't render the plans and blessings of Hashem powerless. God is not, God's hands aren't tied by man's faithlessness. Put that thought far from your head. I've, I heard one one uh, philosopher teach this once at a um, 
I went to a um, a meeting when I was in Korea, and it was um it was kind of a pseudo religious meeting. It was a, a religious. Uh, it was a meeting on how to make well. It was religious. It was a meeting on how to be prosperous. From and they used, they were using biblical principles, and they didn't bill it as a as a Christian meeting or a religious meeting, but. When I when you know after sh- shortly listening to what the uh, teachers had to say, I figured out that's what they're talking about. But he talked about how that um, because man lacks faith in God's principles, God can't operate. And he talked about how that God's hands are tied somehow until we, by faith, step into um, into these these biblical uh, principles. And he was talking about trying to make money. And he was saying that if we don't have faith in these principles, then God. God's hands are tied of sorts, and I don't believe that's true. What ends up really happening is that God is not thwarted by the likeness of man's uh, wickedness and, and man's um, ultimate lack of faith. And the proof is in the Torah itself. Even though Israel demonstrated over and over, historical Israel, demonstrated faithlessness in God, his plans weren't thwarted. The Messiah came to uh, into historical reality. Uh, the promised son given to Abraham, the, the, you know, the, the son of promise, what came to pass, and, and Yeshua was born. And, and all of that despite the fact that Israel over and over again went headlong into idolatry. So, if anything, the Torah proves us that God's sovereignty is greater than man's wickedness and man's uh, lack of faith. So, concerning the corporate unbelief of the Jewish people, what does the Torah say? Let me make a quote from Romans 3, and Paul's making the same point that I just made. Quote, What if some did not have faith? And he's asking rhetorically, you know, speaking of Israel, what if some in Israel didn't have faith? Will their lack of faith nullify God's faithfulness? Of course, it's a rhetorical question. Paul knows the answer to his own question. And he answers, not at all. Let God be true and let every man be a liar. As it is written, and Paul quotes the Tanakh to prove that his very point is true. He doesn't want you to just believe him because he's saying so. He wants you to believe him because God's word says so. Here's the quote that Paul uses. Quote, so that you may be proved right when you speak and prevail when you judge. End quote. And the, um, the whole quote is taken from Romans chapter 3, verse 3 and 4, out of the New International Version. So, let's go on. It is, in fact, the desire of Hashem that we should indeed inherit the blessings intended for us. It really is. God's not willing that any of us should perish. And I might add, God is not willing that any of us should lead diminished lives. Yeshua said, I came that you might have life and that you might have it more abundantly. God goes on to tell Avraham of the future inheritance and blessing of his offspring in Genesis chapter 17, verses 1 through 8. Yitzchak of the future inheritance and blessing of his offspring in Genesis chapter 23, I'm sorry, Genesis chapter 26, verse 3 through 5. And later in our next parasha coming up, we will once again read about Hashem reminding the young man Yaakov about the future inheritance and blessings of his offspring. So you see, in every instance of the Avot, the fathers, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, God tells them, of the future inheritance and blessing of the children coming after them. God doesn't have to do that. But in his mercy and his love, he tells us anyway. And we have to ask sometimes, why does Hashem remind us about the inheritance and the blessings that are ours? I said it's in his mercy and his love, but I think there's probably a little more to it than that. I might imagine that it's because God himself doesn't want us to forget about them. We're the humans. We're the ones who are weak and frail. And we're the ones who have to, to be reminded over and over again of God's faithfulness. More than that, 
it is a reminder to us of his limitless, unbridled love and concern for us, even though we don't deserve these things. So it's both his love for us and a reminder to ourselves. But along with these promises, he wants us also also to be reminded, I believe, that it is his authority and grace alone that makes our glorious rea- uh, history a reality. It's not what we do. We don't chart our own courses. God orders our steps. And God makes sure that the promises are going to come to pass. To be sure, Jacob and his mother Rivka got themselves into a real mess trying to secure what they both thought they knew belonged to them. You know, God told Rebecca that her son uh, Isaac... I'm sorry that her son Jacob would be a covenant man, that he would be the one that the elder would serve, the older would serve the younger. So Rebecca knew this. And so she 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 of course favored um Yaakov. You remember um uh the father favored the older son and the mother favored the younger son. And so the mother the mother and the younger son got together and in and, and kind of cahoots they tried to bring about the promises under their own strength. They um, devised the plan where Jacob and Esau would get together. I'm sorry, where Jacob would go in and um, deceive Papa Isaac by, you know, Jacob put on the um, coat of hair and deceived Papa Isaac into thinking that he was Esau and so that he could get the, the covenant blessing from him. And yet we know, you know, you have to think in hindsight or look back and, and speculate how would it have worked itself if they had, would not have planned that? We know that Jacob was going to be the recipient of the covenant blessing. God had already promised this to Rebecca, And yet they got themselves into trouble, my point, is that because they took matters into their own hands. God eventually works through their uh, scheming. And as we read further into um, our story in Toldot, we learn that the deception and the deceit of both Jacob and Rep- of Rebecca. Uh, as they plot to not only take the birthright of Esau in chapter 25, verse 29 through 33, we also read that eventually the coveted um, verbal blessing from Isaac is pronounced upon the firstborn. And so um, they scheme and they get what they go after, and yet really we know that it's God had planned uh, for um, Jacob to be the recipient of this blessing. And that's in chapter 27 where we read about their scheming. Now, you might single out the fact that Yaakov stole or or supplanted it, uh, as one translation of the name Yaakov suggests. He stole the birthright blessing from his brother Esau. Yet, and I'm trying to make this point here very carefully, yet we also know that Hashem had already promised to his mother earlier that the, quote, elder would serve the younger. So, in a way, you could also conclude that Yaakov, that Jacob, was just taking what already belonged, or eventually would belong to him, in the first place. It is true that the blessing was his. Yet, the lesson I believe the Torah is trying to teach us here is not to take matters into our own hands. That's the point. Just because God promises something to you doesn't mean you have the right to reach out and take it. Unless God tells you to do so. And we don't read in the Torah that God told Rebecca and Jacob, reach out and grab this. Rather, the lesson seems to be that they stepped in where God had not given them permission yet, and yet God still worked through their weakness. So the bottom line is, what Jacob did was still wrong. 
it was wrong, people. It was wrong of him to, to go after that which was his brother's. He should have waited until God gave it to him. Rivka, as well his mother, would pay for her foolishness by sending Yaakov off to her brother Lavan. Laban is how you would read it. Her brother Lavan until the heat of Esau's anger subsided. You can read about that in Genesis chapter 27, verse 43 through 45. And the reason how, or the way that she would pay for it, the, way, the reason I put it in that way, is because she supposed then at a future date that her son Yaakov could return. Remember, Jacob was the beloved one for her. The younger boy was her, her favorite. So she sends him off to Laban until the older brother can you know cool off. Because as soon as he found out that he got cheated, he was pretty hot and heavy, and he told Jacob, you know, next time I see you, I'm going to kill you. But alas, we know as we read through the story that she would never see her beloved Yaakov face to face again. Why? Because she died before they could met back up again. I believe that's God's way of saying to her, you shouldn't have taken matters into your own hands. Mama, even though I promised to you that the, old, the elder would serve the younger, and you, of course, in chatting with your husband, um, uh, um, Itzhak, you knew that Jacob was the covenant recipient. Yet, Mom, you took things into your own hands. You took matters into your own hands. You conspired with the son, and you upset Asaph. And and I'm speaking as if I'm God. That's not the way I was planning it. But yet, God, in his sovereignty, foresaw that that would happen, I believe, and he was able to work through that. And so we just have to speculate as to how it would have happened if they wouldn't have schemed. To be sure, um, Jacob himself would also reap the harvest of his own greed at the hands of another man who would prove to be even greeter than he was. We're going to read about Laban later on. The next few parashot will indeed prove to be intriguing, so stay with us. Don't tune me out just let, uh, just yet. Let me um, draw my parashot to a close, my commentary to a close here. I didn't name the um, chapters like I usually do. I just want to say, finally, I want to mention one last important one last important genealogy or history or historical uh, narrative. Okay, um, in the first few books of the uh, apostolic scriptures, we have Matityahu, which is Matthew. He begins by informing the readers about a very, very prominent historical genealogy, and that, of course, is of the Messiah Yeshua himself. Let's read. Quote. This is the genealogy of Yeshua the Messiah, son of David, son of Abraham. That's verse 1 of Matthew. My point is this in reading Matthew's genealogy, okay? Having established our historical heritage, traced through the loins of the family of the man from ur we must now establish and solidify our heavenly lineage by lining our history up with the history of the man from Nazareth. Let me just pause and let that sink in for a little bit. The Torah teaches us that since we have died to sin and have been buried with him, Yeshua, symbolized in baptism, then our hope lies in the fact that he was raised from the dead. You can reference 1 Corinthians 15, the whole chapter, but specifically look at verses 20 through 28. Moreover, these verses prepare us in understanding the spiritual inheritance. 
There's a link to our Torah portion, Toldot, inheritance. The spiritual inheritance that we have in Messiah is mentioned in Ephesians 1, verses 3 through 14. So uh, let's look at verses 11 through 12 of Ephesians. Okay, quote, Also in union with him, we were given an inheritance. Again, the word inheritance is my... Um, literary device that I've been using throughout my commentary. Inheritance, offspring, uh, toldote, history, uh, genealogy, lineage, these things. Inheritance is my key there. All right? Also in union with him we were given an inheritance. We who were picked in advance according to the purpose of the Holy One, uh, of the One who affects everything in keeping with the decision of His will, so that we who earlier had put our hope in the Messiah would bring Him praise commensurate with His glory. End quote from uh, Ephesians there. So, looking forward by faith, we find that Yeshua's inheritance is our inheritance. He being the first fruits of those who are raised to life in righteousness. Isn't that wonderful? Because genealogy is very, very important to Hashem, we should seek to better understand the history we inherited by faith from Father Avraham. I challenge you to read Romans chapter 4. You who were not born Jewish, not to worry. You've been grafted in. And in the engrafting, the inheritance, I'm sorry, the inheritance and heritage of Israel becomes your inheritance, and your heritage. Israel's history is your history. And that's what I mean by the importance of genealogy. I don't mean to say that you have to be born Jewish or you, or you don't have to be. I'm not, I'm not trying to either elevate or diminish genealogy. What I'm trying to point out is that in Messiah, genealogy becomes of importance because it means that we are linked to the man Yeshua and we become part of his family. And that's what I mean when I say genealogy is very important to Hashem. In fact, a man by the name of Abraham J. Heschel developed a, thing, a theme along these lines, the very lines I'm talking. In his volume on philosophy and religion, and the book is entitled Man is Not Alone, he writes these, okay, quote, this is a quote from Heschel's book, quote, when the hurricanes of life batter us so that we bend to the point of breaking, we are not rootless. There is a firm and secure root to support us. The root that supports us, his references to Romans 11.18, and nourishes us, the references to chapter 11, verse 17, is the godly living faith of Israel. Heschel goes on to say, and I'll finish with this quote, This is our foundation, to know the God of history, Israel's history. He makes a reference to Hebrews 11. He finally goes on to say, This concept of history brings ultimate meaning and purpose to both personal and global events. We are not alone, he says. The future is secure. God is alive, at work, and in control. End quote. Heschel's book, uh, Man is Not Alone, was produced out of a New York Farrar Strauss, uh, I'm sorry, Farrar Strauss and Giraud. Uh, 1951, and it was reprinted by New York Harper and Row in 1966. And with Heschel's quote, I conclude my commentary. The closing blessing is as follows: Baruch Ata Adonai Eloheinu Melech Olam, 
אשר נתן לנו תורת אמת, וחיי עולם נטע בתוכנו. ברוך אתה, אדוני, נותן התורה. אמן. Blessed are you, O Lord, our God, King of the universe. You have given us your Torah of truth and have planted everlasting life within our midst. Blessed are you, Lord, giver of the Torah. Amen. Shabbat Shalom. That concludes our show for today. Remember, Because the Messiah has already come, the Torah is now a document meant to be lived out in the life of a faithful follower of Yeshua, through the power of the Ruach HaKodesh to the glory of God the Father. It should not be presumed that it can be obeyed mechanically, automatically, legalistically, without having faith, without having trust in Hashem, without having love for God or man, and without being empowered by the Ruach HaKodesh. To state it succinctly, Torah observance is a matter of the heart, always has been, and always will be. My name is Torah teacher Ariel Ben Lyman Hanavi. The intro and outro song, Shema, was written, produced, and performed by Ryan Kingsley. For information on contacting Ryan, you can reach me, By email at Yeshua613 at Hotmail.com. That's Y-E-S-H-U-A, number 613 at Hotmail.com. Or visit our website at GraftedIn.com. That's GraftedIn.com. 